Indiana. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. For this one, have Lonely Islands, I'm on a boat plane. (laughs) Wasn't that a great part of the early 2000s, Lonely Island? Jizz in my Um, pants is a great song. (laughs) Yeah, who who knows if uh, people still know who the Lonely Island is. I know. Kids, Google it. (laughs) Kids these days. The the babies listening. An SNL skit that got way out of hand. Yeah, many of them. Um, so yeah, so this week is shipwrecks. Woohoo. Um, I don't know about y'all, but my shipwreck does have some tem- cemetery ties, so that's mm-hmm. good. Yes. Um, so no one can complain that we didn't talk about cemetery. Mine has um, memorial <laughs> shenanigans. Yes. My, there better. are I talk about burials and also um a memorial in mine too. So yeah, cool. Mine has a supernatural, as in the TV Ooh. show connection. So oh, I'm, I'm very excited to get to that. So. And I did no research; like I know nothing about either of your stories, so I'm excited Yay. to Yay. Um, to hear um, it firsthand. We don't have any true crime news, no. I don't Not think so that I can think of, no. other than uh, what you shared this week, Hannah, about the um. Oh yeah, Alice uh, Siebold. Yes. Yeah. That is man, bananas. The wild man story. Who was uh, sentenced and served, I think it was like 16 years. A while. In prison for raping, allegedly raping mm-hmm. her um, when she was 18. Uh, they overturned his conviction. And uh, there's a lot of story to it. Um, Alice came out and apologized today. I mean, that was the right thing to do. I don't know. Right. Right how it's going to play out but i'm sure she feels horrible knowing yes yeah. because there was a lot of she was pressured by the police mm-hmm. to, to identify yeah. him when she identified someone who was not the correct him. person yeah or, right or what they said so uh so much love to that man and his family hopefully yeah. you know he and his wife can enjoy their remaining years together and and sue the hell out of uh I guess California. I don't even remember where yeah. it was, but whatever state put him behind bars. So let get your money. Yes. Within our parents' lifetime, a black man falsely accused of raping a white woman would have gone down very differently. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I keep will that in say, mind. Speaking of some true crime news, which my mother has followed religiously and called to cheer, um, <laughs> that the cold-blooded murderers of Ahmaud Aubrey. Yes! Yes! Thank God. Put yes. them in the jail. Put them under the jail. Throw away the lock and key. And you know what? Do that for their pro- their uh, defense attorneys too because they were, they were literal trash. trash. Mm. Absolute trash. And I will say this as somebody like I, I believe everyone deserves a vigorous defense. I absolutely, mm-hmm. I believe everyone deserves a trial by their peers. I believe cameras should be in like all courtrooms because the public has a vested interest in knowing what is going on in these courtrooms. Like uh, I hate it when I hear other podcasts say, Oh, he got off on a technicality. Oh, you mean his constitutional rights? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Technicality. So I am 
completely pro-defense in a lot of places, but they were trash. Like, I don't know how you can sleep at night. Like, that's how terrible. Like, that was amoral. Like, that was it. That wasn't defending your client. That was being completely amoral and it was disgusting. It was. It was 100% disgusting. So anyway, I hope they rot. I hope they suffer. They will. I don't say that about a lot of people, but that was a terrible, terrible death. And I send all my love to Ahmaud Aubrey's family and friends because. Yes. Just, and I say that young. about everybody and I especially yeah. hope they rot. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I'm like, you know that they lost. They lost that for no young reason. man for, for no, no reason, reason. Mm-hmm. in such a horrible death. And then they had to sit there while those defense attorneys just tarnished his name. And it was right. disgusting. It was... Anyway. Yeah. Well, in so, positive news, before we get started, yeah. I do want to recommend a podcast. So yes. let's hear um, I'm caught up now that, you know, back to work on Monday after the holiday. Um, so I downloaded uh, Dateline's The Thing About Helen and Olga. <gasps> I've been meaning to I listen to that one. It is fantastic. I love, love, love Keith Morrison. I do and too. His just his similes and his metaphors are just bananas in this series. And it's only six episodes. Uh, so definitely do- download that and give it a listen because I just, I was. It's a horrible story, a horrible case. Right. Yeah. I'm cracking up at all of his metaphors. It is banana. <laughs> that was one of the episodes of last podcast I made Sheena listen to. Was the Black <laughs> Widows part one and two and Helen and Olga. It was pretty fantastic. Yeah, I, they are uh, a, they have a crazy story. May and they rot in peace. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, lady, like I was just watching a thing about Bonnie Lee Bakley. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I don't. I don't think anyone should be murdered for star fucking. Um, <laughs> if that's your thing, that's your thing. Do your thing. Um, mm-hmm. Girl bossed a little close to the sun on that she one. Did. I'm like, God, love you, sweetheart. I don't think you should have been killed, but God damn, you were making some bad choices. Yeah, that's, uh-huh. a, that's a rough story, too. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just uh, let's do this. Yes, let's, let's, let's get talk to it. About <laughs> shipwrecks. Mass, mass death here. On the um, water. Yeah, because I'm going first. Um, all right, y'all. Picture it. <laughs> the very messy United States of America in April 1865. Oh, Jesus. Yee. That was a... Talk busy, about a hangover. <laughs> messy, historic month for this country. It was like crazy news after crazy news after crazy news. So... So it was their 2020. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> um, so this is just what's going on. And then I'll explain the boat wreck. But I, I feel like I need to set the scene a bit. So the Civil War was coming to an end. Confederate General Robert E. Lee, who was trash, surrendered yeah, yep. on April 9th at the Appomattox Courthouse. Uh, and then, of course, you, you have at the end of this great war, the country's sort of trying to gain its footing again. They're trying to figure out, you know, how to rebuild the country. They're negotiating the return of prisoners of war. It's just all this messy, messy, messy stuff. Five days after, after the South surrender, a, uh, president Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's theater. And he died the next morning. 
And then on April 26th, uh, Booth himself was shot and killed. And I know that is up for debate. That is for another episode we're going to do later on because there's a Memphis connection there too. Anyway, Ooh, that is a fantastic episode <laughs> of The Dollop. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Fucking recommend. It oh, I love The Dollop so terrible. much. Patton Oswald is their guest. It yeah. is so funny. Oh, I, I love, love Patton. Patton. Yeah, he's great. All right. So that is all that has happened in just one month oh only yeah (laughs) only one month and 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 as i said april 26th was when booth was shot and killed but uh so then the steamboat sultana exploded and sank on the mississippi river on april 27th killing over 1000 people and it became america's worst maritime disaster in history it barely even made the newspapers oh because All of that other stuff <laughs> that yeah. happened and was going on. And so everyone was like, a lot of people are dead. Shrug. Um, <laughs> I mean, so, anyway. so it was 2020 when we're like, oh, yes, mass oh, death. We don't care. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you guys realize like the Panama Papers dropped and we're like, we're dying. So no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're going to go back a couple of years before disaster struck and talk a little bit about the uh, the Sultana as a ship. It was a steamboat built out of wood in 1863 in Ohio. It was att- um, originally intended to be used on the lower Mississippi River from St. Louis to NOLA for the cotton trade. She normally carried a crew of 85 and... Uh, she had a capacity of 376 passengers. Uh, she was very fancy. They had a lot of really nice stuff, like um, nice chandeliers and all this fancy silver, all this fancy stuff, whatever. Um, so it was used a little bit sort of as a pleasure thing, but then later it was like cotton trade stuff. Um, however, if you ever need some uh, guidance in your life, um, don't name your boat after four other ships that's been named the same thing that were all also destroyed. Um, <laughs> bad luck. Like, like a bunch of dumb fucks. Really bad luck. Like, uh, yeah. as the um, child of a sailor, bad luck. Yeah, Fourth yeah. time's the charm. Uh, this was the fifth. The oh, fifth shit. <laughs> Sultana. The other four had been destroyed in fires and other accidents. So. A thing you sort of need to understand is, and this is not interesting, but it's sort of important to why everything goes the way it goes. The Sultana had these four tubular boilers and they made the ship faster, which was great, but that didn't make it safer. The water levels in the tubular systems had to be maintained at all times. And then the sediment and mineral buildup from the water, um, could be difficult to scrape off and even the slightest dip in the water level could cause hot spots leading to metal fatigue which leads to a big risk in um or leads to an increase in the risk of explosion not only this but the ship as a whole was made out of wood and then covered in paint and varnish and you know should should someone light a match that's just literally adding fuel to the fire right Everything was flammable until 1997. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Especially this ship. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, um, this ship is out here existing, doing its thing. 
as I said, the civil war was coming to an end and they were trying to, you know, all these officials were trying to get these prisoners of war back to their homes and thousands, thousands of union prisoners of war who've been held in Andersonville in Georgia and Cahaba, Alabama, uh, had been brought to a small camp outside of Vicksburg to await their return north. Oh, Vicksburg. <laughs> yeah. Poor old Vicksburg here. Um, you know, and these guys, uh, bless their heart. So many of these men had been severely wounded in the war, but then of course, being at a Confederate prisoner of war camp, they were malnourished. A lot of them were flat out starving, like literally skin and bones. Um, they had a lot of diseases, just bad health in general. Um, and a lot of the soldiers didn't even make the journey from either Georgia or Alabama to mm. Mississippi. A lot of them, they had to bury along the way. Oh. So these guys are not doing well, but they, the war's over. They're ready to go home. They have written to their loved ones and said, we're coming home. So I, I'm telling you all of this to, to show you where it all melds together. So, all right. When Lincoln was shot, the Sultana and its crew headed up by Captain James Mason of St. Louis were in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And Mason decided to spread the news down south because a lot of the southern states had been cut off in the war so they wouldn't have heard the news as quickly so he goes on a a, kind of a news telling mission like hey y'all guess what bad news (laughs) um in vicksburg mason met with a man named captain reuben hatch who wanted to cut a deal the government would pay $5 per enlisted man and $10 per officer to any steamboat captain who would take them north. And Mason needed the money. And Hatch said, hey, I'll guarantee you 1,400 prisoners if you'll give me a kickback. Oh, boy. Yeah. That uh, so they well. agree. Yeah, this is not going to go well. Uh, so they agree to this. The Sultana went on south to New Orleans to tell more people about the assassination. Then it came back north. And just south of Vicksburg, like right before they got to Vicksburg, one of the ship's boilers leaked. And Mason was ready to get going. So he tells a mechanic, just do a patch job. Like, we need to get to Vicksburg. We need to pick up all these prisoners of war and make this money. And, you Mm, know, we we do a patch job and we'll go on. A full repair should have taken a couple of days. This repair only took one. Y'all see where this is going. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Super wise choice there, Captain. I'm telling you. Captain Frederick Speed was in charge of loading the uh, the soldiers onto the boat. And he loaded more than 2,000 sailors on the Sultana, far Ooh. more than the 1,400 originally planned. Oh, didn't is, you say it could hold like 300, some, something like that? Oh, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, Jesus. When the Sultana left Vicksburg, it had 2,000 soldiers, 100 civilian passengers, 85 crew members, 22 guards, 300,000 pounds or 150 tons of sugar. <laughs> 90 cases of wine, 100 mills and horses, and an alligator. What? (laughs) And yes, how did it stay afloat? (laughs) And this ship was only meant to hold uh, 376 passengers. Was it fucking Noah? 
uh, I will post a picture that was taken of the ship with all of its passengers on board, uh, taken three days before the explosion. And, and it's wild. Like you can almost see, you, you can barely see the ship. You just see people everywhere. Oh my God. And I mean, think about it too. So many of these people are miserable. They are wounded. They don't feel well. Some of them, they keep kind of near the boiler. So they'll stay warm. Yeah. It is just point, a mess. I'd be like, put me on a raft like same behind Slow me behind you. Yeah. let me just like um, put the line <laughs> this was uh, at the time the largest amount of people to ride on any kind of ship on the mississippi you fucking think and because there were so many people on this boat there were parts of it like the decks and stuff that were sagging so like they would tell the the captain like hey you know like that deck is kind of sagging so like they would go rush and try to put something up there to like keep it up but i'm like it it's is your deck sagging or are you just happy to see me <laughs> sorry i need that on a shirt <laughs> <laughs> may west came out i had to um in addition to all of this just bad decisions running rampant uh this was spring in the south and so uh Oof. we'd had a lot of rain and the mississippi river was just bigger than usual because of all that rainwater. So that plus all these passengers, the boilers had to work harder than ever. Um, and yes, at the stop in Helena, Arkansas, a photographer did take a picture of the ship to show how full it was. I'll post that on our socials. Um, the ship somehow miraculously made it to Memphis on April 26th. Uh, they unloaded most of the sugar, but I think they didn't then evenly distribute the rest of their cargo slash people. Yeah, you got to so, do that. Yeah, mm -hmm. you got to do that. It's important. And then also 200 men disembarked. Um, I think they, some of them were like, oh, look, ashore. We're going to go. <laughs> we're out. <laughs> we're ladies. fucking out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but some of them were like, you know, they wanted to get off the ship, whatever. Cool. But they left them there, whatever. It's like these um, people have never been on a pool floaty. You got to equalize. Yeah. Yeah. So... That evening, the ship takes off again, and at around 2 a.m. on April 27th, just seven miles north of Memphis on the Mississippi River, the boilers exploded. Eek. The large wooden ship was basically instantly destroyed, and all that was left was like a fiery hunk of wood. And I'm going to read from the Memphis Bulletin um, from the news story that, that sets the scene in a really <laughs> terrifying way. The scene following the explosion was terrible and heart-rending heart in the extreme. Hundreds of people were blown into the air and descending into the water, some dead, some with broken limbs, some scalded, were born under the resistless current of the great river, never to rise again. The survivors represent the screams as agonizing beyond precedent. Some clung to frail pieces of the wreck as drowning men cling to straws and sustained themselves for a few moments, but finally became exhausted and sunk. Yeah. Only the best swimmers, aided by fragments of the wreck, were able to reach the woods and there take refuge until rescue by boats sent from the landing here to their assistance. So yeah, um, this is not just a bunch of they just like union kaboom. soldiers yeah uh -huh. they were literally flown everywhere this is also Oof. families there were several yeah. stories of families oh, i don't man. think any child that was on the boat survived Ugh. um <laughs> passengers were thrown into the water they were crushed by the collapsing ship 
Um, some were trapped inside the wreckage and were alive, maybe for a moment, but not all of them. A lot of them drowned. Some died of hypothermia. Um, because these Union soldiers were wounded or malnourished in bad health. They didn't really have a chance. Yeah. They didn't have a chance. They, could, they didn't have the strength to save themselves. Ugh. And they said that some of them tried to hold on to each other, but then even then they couldn't make it. Yeah. So entire groups went down together. Oof. Bodies of victims were found downriver for months, uh, some as far south as Vicksburg. Oh, man. Um, a lot of bodies were never recovered. Oof. Um, and I think I, in this one documentary I watched, they talked about like poking at the wreckage like days later to like try to get some of the bodies loose so they Oof. could bury them. Uh-uh. He was bad. Um, most of these Sultana's officers, including Captain Mason, died. He didn't die in the initial explosion. They people saw him trying to do things to help people, but then he was never seen again. Mm. And at daylight, of course, the city of Memphis is horrified to see this aftermath. Um, Bodies were dragged up from the river. They were lined up on um, the bluff right there. And they would, they were bringing every casket they could get, but they eventually ran out of caskets. Wow. Um, But to talk about the survivors, uh, the steamer Bostana arrived at about 2.30 in the morning and rescued a lot of them. Some survivors um, managed to float a little bit down toward the Memphis waterfront and they called for help until they were rescued. And um, a lot of people like to mention, well, this was kind of ironic because a lot of these were Union soldiers and they were rescued by these Confederate soldiers who were right there at the water. But I'm like, I don't know that they were thinking like that. And that right. I think they were not. thinking... I, I hope they were just there is a human being person in, in the water. Yeah. yeah. Um, some survivors were thrown into the semi-submerged trees along the Arkansas shore, which is a little oh, wild to me. That's a terrible place to end up. I know. Um, and about 760 survivors were treated at the hospitals in Memphis, basically filling up every available had. And a third of them died within days, mostly of burns. Mm. So this leaves then a couple hundred Union soldiers in Memphis stranded. They, they still have to get home. Um, and they've not only survived the Civil War, but they've survived these prisoner of war camps. And now the Sultana. Those poor bastards. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Goddamn. Um, some of them tried to uh, find their comrades and family members. Um, but they never, there are some that never found their families. They just mm. stayed here. Um, some were taken to a soldier's home that was, I guess, sort of like a VA type of thing before there yeah, was a yeah. VA. Um, but a lot of them, they said were taken in by Memphis families, which I think is nice. Mm-hmm. Well, back in the day, sometimes when you ended up stranded there, you're like, well, I live, I live here, here now. now. I live here now. Yeah. I think I, I, I would really like to see if we could track down some of those maybe people who have done more research than i have mm-hmm. know these stories better and could point me in the direction of some of those i just looked yeah. at other stories yeah um but there were some who were they suffered very minor injuries and they were able to eventually get back onto another steamboat and go north awesome. <laughs> i'd never get awesome. on another boat i know I mean, yeah they gotta, said they didn't want to they said you could you tell they train, were a mule yeah, PTSD. Anything. They were very, very scared. And they said, especially too, when they um, passed by the side of the wreck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like that's, yeah. Um, 
what was left of the Sultana drifted about six miles and then sank at around, um, what did I mean there? Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I know exactly what I meant. I'm sorry. Okay. So the ship exploded at like two, two thirty in the morning, whatever, mm-hmm. but then it sank officially sank at 9am. Okay. Um, near Marion, Arkansas. Okay. Yeah, that's what I meant. Anyway, um, and because we always somehow have a Memphis and Chicago connection, um, the Chicago Opera Troupe, um, which was obviously a little acting, I don't want to say vaudeville because that was before the time, but you know what I mean. Right. They had previously traveled on the Sultana and they put on a benefit performance for the survivors. And there were several other like local ships and, and things like that that like made up money. Um, in December of 1885, survivors of the Sultana started attending annual reunions and they formed the National S- Sultana Survivors Association. You almost said satanic and I low-key <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe. Um, the final Sultana survivor um, was Private Charles M. Eldridge, who died at the age of 96 on September Damn. 8th, 1941, more than 76 years after, sh- after the shipwreck. Damn. Good for him. Um, I did hear, too, about a man who he was one of the last of that group of survivors that met for the reunion. And, like, at the last meeting, it was just him. So, like, he called oh, wow. Wall and no one Aww. was there to say here except for him. That made me Gross. Um, so the exact death toll is unknown because they just crammed so many people yeah. on there. Yeah, record but keeping it, was a little lax back in the day. A little iffy. Um, but this is the worst maritime disaster in American history. Um, I've seen numbers fluctuate anywhere from a little over a thousand to as high as seventeen hundred. Mm. Um, but it, it is technically considered worse than that than the Titanic. But yeah, of course, too, the sure. Titanic wasn't necessarily like in american waters or right so sometimes i'm like well whatever but anyway this is the worst maritime disaster for the united states um most of the dead union soldiers were buried at fort pickering cemetery in memphis but later moved to the memphis national cemetery they all pretty well have monuments that say unknown soldier Mm. um which there's a whole story there too with some of that but either way um but here's a thing that I think is wild because the Mississippi river has changed course several times since this disaster in 1865, the remains of the ship are under dry land. Oh, in 1982 blackened wooden deck planks and timbers were found about 32 feet beneath a soybean field in Arkansas. About miles south of Memphis. God damn Arkansas. Enough. <laughs> um the official cause of the explosion wildly is up for debate they mostly uh, most historians agree that the past patch job on the boiler combined with a swollen river and an overcrowded boat led to the explosion but there are some rumors that it had been sabotaged some claim that a confederate agent used a coal torpedo to bring down the ship um that one confederate guy drag name (laughs) yeah that he um supposedly confessed to it on his deathbed and i'm like don't they all yeah and there was there were a couple rumors like that and i'm like you know what i just i I think it was a a mix of bad decisions and a 
a, a big river and a, a flammable so boat. An extremely yeah, flammable boat. Also, no one was ever held accountable for this. Oh, um, wow. Captain Mason died. So there or he did, went. Well, you said he disappeared. So maybe. Well, I wondered that, but they said, I forget now how they worded it, what they said he was doing. He was trying to do something. And then they're like, he most likely went down the ship. Though. I think he went down the ship. Okay. Captain okay. Hatch, who developed the plan to overcrowd the boat, you know, yeah, that guy originally, yeah. he quit the service to avoid being court martialed. I think Smart. he knew some people who knew some people. So mm-hmm. they were like, oh, we're not oh, going to yeah. charge him. And then uh, the Captain Speed, who did put those people on there, he was initially um, put to trial and found guilty. But later they found out that he wasn't there when the people were actually loading on or something like that. Mm-hmm. Either way, I say all that to say, and there's a lot more detail to it, but for time's sake, yeah. trust me when I say, no one was ever held accountable for the worst maritime disaster in U.S. history. Well, that is a shocker. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis has a Sultana monument, and it reads in part, in memory of those who died on the ill-fated passenger steamer Sultana, the soldier was returning home and longed to see loved ones. The bride and bridegroom talked of future plans. The mother embraced her babe in sleep. We salute we salute their memory and for the agony and terror of that night we bid them god's mercy um if you happen to be in muncie Alabama, indiana marion arkansas vicksburg mississippi cincinnati ohio knoxville tennessee hillsdale michigan or mansfield ohio you will also find sultana monuments knoxville so, yeah an- i forget why i remember reading why now <laughs> how did it get way over there i don't know and if you're in Marion, Arkansas, get out now. Yeah. <laughs> Run. Um, there were two civilian passengers who were also buried at Elmwood, a lady named Esther Spikes, who is 42, and then 17-year-old Susan Spikes. I have heard that was her daughter. I've also heard that was her sister. You know, know, the age range, either one could be true. I know. So I was like, whatever. And then there was a crew member named George Slater. He was 28. He is also buried at Elmwood. Mm. All of them are in the Fowler section. And I don't think they have markers, which makes me sad. Mm. Um, so to wrap up, um, there are a couple of really cool documentaries on like YouTube about the Sultana, um, a couple of books here and there and all that. Um, Elmwood does a really great um, little series called My Elmwood. And one of our volunteers, Tommy, who is, I wish I could somehow download all of his Elmwood information. He is just a walking encyclopedia. He has a great um, little video about uh, the Sultana. It's really good. But what I really recommend is a documentary on Amazon Prime called Remember the Sultana. It has narration by Sean Austin, like, um, you know, uh, Rudy. Oh, yeah. And, um, that he's the cute hobbit that sings about potatoes. Sean yeah. Astin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I said, I said Austin. Austin. Oh, whoops. Sorry. <laughs> um, but here's my supernatural connection, and then I'm done. Okay, our friend, Our friend Jim Beaver. I say our friend. Um, he is our friend. He, I <laughs> wish he was my friend. He is Bobby Singer from Supernatural. Um, he also provides narration. He plays the role of like a survivor and um, he talks or he reads this guy's like letters and, you know, personal sort of stories. Mm-hmm. It, 
I mean, I was like bawling at my desk. Oh my I was God. just like, it is so moving and beautiful because his section is really from a man who was writing about these union soldiers and how they had just survived this horrific war, yeah, horrible prisoner of war camps. And, and now this, and it, it was just very beautiful the way this soldier from a hundred and whatever years ago wrote. And then Bobby Singer, Jim Beaver yes. <laughs> uh, did a great job. I so love him. I love him actor. so much. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He that was is my favorite part of that show. Me too. Me too. I've always loved Bobby. So. Always. Yes. Yeah, Good so job, that Sheena. Is, That's the yes, I like I, that. Like I knew. I think it was like a question um, in my U.S. history class in high school. You know, we learned about this happened right after the Civil War. And it was like, what was the name of the ship that was sunk outside Memphis? So I didn't know much more than that. So it's really, really interesting and sad. um, I brushed over so many details, Mm -hmm. but that uh, documentary does such a good job of telling or providing stories from the survivors and they're so moving and so horrifying like yeah you just think okay it exploded but no there's so many just heartbreaking stories about like a there was one woman who watched both her husband and child die like (gasps) you know things like that that you're just like oh my god and then one guy was like I was flown from the ship and I broke both my ankles how do you survive that how do you swim with broken broken ankles ankles. both of them it's so tragic but you know that's what we're here for you know we're three chicks if it was one of us telling the story then yeah we could go into more detail we're just we deliver the high points and what stands out to us and then if people want to learn more that's what the goog machine is for absolutely (laughs) the goog the goog all right hannah Okay, so this is me realizing that this is actually my third boat story. <laughs> it's Simon the Ship Cat. Yes. A survivor story. And now this yes, one. I, mm-hmm. yeah. very, I don't know how you're going to top your survivor story. I know. The survivor story That was, was a good. good one. Okay, so speaking of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> as the holidays approach, your bosses might see fit to have a company event like a party or a cruise or some other amusement. After the story, you might want to give that some thought. If there's one thing I love about both the Gilded Age and Chicago in general is the complete and utter disregard for human life and absolutely no fear of death. Take a ride on Lower Wacker Drive, which I'm going to take Sheena on. (laughs) Tell me to my face that was designed by someone who has a healthy fear of mortality and a general concern for the welfare of others. Oh, God, Hannah. (laughs) It is literally like Grand Theft Auto on PvP mode. It is insane. So with this backdrop, on July 24th, 1915... So, you know, things are going to go great. (laughs) Workers at Western Electric Company's Hawthorne Works in Cicero, Illinois, boarded five steamer ships heading from Chicago to a picnic spot in Michigan City, Indiana. That's a lot of cities and states in one city. Uh, One of those was the SS Eastland. The ensuing calamity started out with the best of intentions. After the Titanic disaster... President Woodrow Wilson signed a law requiring all passenger vessels to be equipped with adequate lifeboats. What could go wrong? (laughs) 
Sailors on the Great Lakes pointed out this policy would make the ships that sailed the lakes dangerously top heavy because the lake's not as deep as the ocean. So you have to kind of balance the weight on your ship a little bit differently. But it became law of the land nonetheless. The owners of the Eastland could either reduce the capacity or increase the number of lifeboats. They chose the latter, increasing the weight of the ship greatly. The law isn't entirely to blame for what happened. Fuckery was about. (laughs) The Eastland herself had a history of misfortune. In her inaugural season in 1903, the ship sank a tugboat in the Chicago River. Oh, no. What did the tugboat do? She just ran right into that tugboat and sunk (laughs) it. I'm like, damn, damn, girl. (laughs) Then, a month later, there would be a mutiny when (laughs) six of the ship's firemen refused to stoke the boilers because they didn't receive their potato allotment. (laughs) Don't fuck with a man and his potatoes. The captain was held at gunpoint. This is an entirely appropriate reaction to being denied potatoes, in my opinion. I agree. (laughs) Look, get between me and my potatoes. Somebody's pulling a gun. Okay. I'm sorry. (laughs) When I say fuck around and find out, that includes potatoes. (laughs) When the ship finally made it to dock, the six potato-less men were charged with mutiny. The owners of the ship made some specious upgrades, including replacing the wood flooring with concrete. Concrete? Concrete. And shortening the smokestacks. The Eastland also had a history of listing. Listing is when it moves from one side or the other. There's going to be a lot of boat terms. And while my father Mm. is a sailor, I am not. (laughs) Ask him. I don't know. In 1904, the Eastland very nearly capsized with 3,000 people on board. The capacity was dropped to 2,800. But again, in 1906, another listing incident occurred. As the ship changed hands, modifications that would have drastic effects on the stability of the ship would be made. And in 1915, shit would inevitably hit the fan. On the morning of July 24th, passengers, again, plant workers and their families heading out for a nice company picnic, began boarding the ship around 6.30. By 7.10 a.m., so 40 minutes, I did math, I'm a journalism major, (laughs) the Eastland had reached its capacity of 2,572 passengers. Damn, that's a lot of people. That is moving some buddies. Yeah. And then the Eastland listed... The side of the ship opposite the wharf began to dip into the water. The crewman tried to fill ballast tanks with water to get her centered, but to no avail. During the next 15 minutes, imagine what you can do in 15 minutes. This is what happened here. The passengers rushed to the port side of the ship. So the side closest to the dock, which is just, it's like a Looney Tunes cartoon when they keep running back and forth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like horrifying hoping to seesaw the ship back to center. As if following suit, the Eastland lurched in the same direction. It was like, oh, we're doing this? Okay. (laughs) Rolling completely portside and coming to rest at the bottom of the Chicago River, just 20 feet below the surface, leaving barely half of the immense steamer submerged. Now imagine that sight of just like half a ship on its side, just like sticking out of the fucking river. 
Many passengers were below deck, warming up on a damp morning, and were soon trapped within the ship. Those that weren't drowned were crushed by heavy furniture, pianos, and bookcases. This thing had a fucking piano. It had more than one that could crush people. It was Jesus Christ. That is wild. And while the response was fast and many of the passengers were able to leap from the hull onto other ships or take their chances swimming the river, 844 passengers and four crew members died. It's the greatest maritime disaster on the Great Lakes. Mm. 220 of those were Czech immigrants from the nearby Cicero neighborhood. The bodies were taken to a temporary morgue for identification, and those left without a name were buried in the armory of the 2nd Regiment. Western Electric provided $100,000, about $2.7 million in today's money, for relief for victims and their families. The media coverage and inevitable lawsuits would follow, with Western Electric and the steam... uh, ship company on the hook a grand jury indicted the president and three other officers of the steamship company for manslaughter and the ship's captain and engineer for criminal carelessness and found that the disaster was caused by conditions of instability caused by any or all of overloading of passengers mishandling of water ballast or the construction of the ship but it's chicago so don't get your hopes up <laughs> clarence darrow of scopes monkey trial fame argued for the defense that while the Eastland had been initially constructed to deliver fruit, (laughs) the current owners and operators had no way of knowing it couldn't safely be retrofitted for passengers. How could they possibly know that? (laughs) Not that it hadn't listed five fucking times before, heaven forbid. A judge refused to extradite the accused and the case went nowhere. Go figure. Mm-hmm. The poor Eastland was then used for what any ship with a body count should do. She was retrofitted into the USS Wilmette and used in the Illinois Naval Reserve. In 1921, she would sink a captured German U-boat and then spend the remainder of her career transporting Navy recruits to the Great Lakes Naval Base, including famous war correspondent Ernie Pyle. Hmm. Fun journalism facts. The USS Wilmette was officially decommissioned on December 9th, 1945 and sold for scrap in 1947. A marker commemorating the accident was dedicated on June 4th, 1989. The marker was reported stolen in April of 2000. (laughs) What? Yes. Chicago. (laughs) Chicago. (laughs) And a replacement marker was installed and rededicated on July 24th, 2003. A memorial to the victims of the Eastland disaster was dedicated in 2015 in Bohemian National Cemetery. And the last known survivor of the Eastland disaster, Marion Ike Holtz, died on November 24th, 2014, at the oh, wow. age of 102. These people <laughs> live. <laughs> yeah, Man. they did. Marion was like, come get me, death, you motherfucker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's what was written on her grave. Exactly. (laughs) Marion Eicholtz made death her bitch. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So that is the sad, sad story of the SS Eastland. And if you take a river walk tour, well, if you are touristing in Chicago, which I highly recommend because they're a lot of fun and the river walk is beautiful. Um, And it's dog friendly. So you see lots of, of very good boys and girls. Aww. And um, 
but they're they will like talk about the Eastland disaster and like the shenanigans that ensued. So hmm. wonderful cool. Chicago story. Insane. Yeah. Oh yeah. Bananas. <sighs> now speaking of bananas, you, why would oh, no, you steal ahead. a monument though? Like where is it? Who has it? It like, is like it probably was like was it worth anything? The what it no, was made of? I mean, it was made of metal, I guess. As someone who allegedly stole a street sign in her teen years, um, <laughs> allegedly, I, I might have allegedly done this because the name of the road was called Wiener Cutoff. <laughs> And that street sign might have existed in my parents' attic until our house burned down in 2007 and my mom found it. It was like, what the fuck is the street sign doing in our house? I was like, (laughs) I I don't know how that got there. Look, do you know how, I'm sure that sign has been stolen so many times. Oh yeah. They should have renamed the cutoff. It takes you to Weeder, Arkansas. Which is a real place. Yeah, bless their heart. Yes. Yeah, bless their hearts for sure. We were on Jay Leno once because our local newspaper had the headline flu shots to be given in Wiener. <laughs> oh, man, I missed the headline segment. Yeah. I am Jay not Leno. for the record because I have been smack talking Arkansas pretty heavy in this episode. <laughs> I grew up there. I did not yeah. grow up in Wiener. I grew up 15 minutes from Wiener. Wiener. <laughs> My, Arkansas, uh, also the home of Bald Knob and Toad Suck. And Koshkanog. <laughs> yes. So, politely, fuck Arkansas. <laughs> yes. My, my dad's family side of the family is from um, Arkansas. So, I, I feel you there. They're from yes. Sedgwick and Light. Gross. Um, <laughs> near Blavel. <laughs> That's how you have to say it. Not Blissville. You know, like you don't have an education. You have to Mm. pronounce it like you've never read a fucking word in your life. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's exactly right. Now, moving on from Arkansas slander time to (laughs) Navy slander time. Hell yeah. uh, Hannah and I were talking about this off mic. My dad did serve in the Navy for four years after graduating high school. So I can slander the Navy a little bit in the story because. And my mm, dad is currently active duty Navy and I co-sign everything. (laughs) Yes. So the Navy fucked over someone majorly in this story and um, they need to be held accountable a little bit. So as we learned in one of our more recent episodes, I have quite the obsession with the movie Jaws and know an inordinate amount of trivia about the film, such as the fact that actor Robert Shaw, who portrayed Shark Hunter and all-around badass Quint, was completely shit-faced throughout most of the movie, but he had to shoot his gut-wrenching, famous USS Indianapolis speech which he improvised most of stone cold sober. Hmm. So he is shit faced for every scene, except that one. And he <laughs> nailed it in one take. Wow. Uh, goes to speak to his ability as an actor. Just if you haven't seen it, just Google that scene. It's fantastic. 
So what does this have to do with today's topic? Well, as you have probably guessed, I will be sharing the tragic story of the USS Indianapolis, the Navy ship that was famously sunk by a Japanese submarine during World War II in an incident that led to the largest shark attack in United States history and the greatest single loss of life from a single ship at sea in the history of the U.S. Navy. We begin with a history lesson. The USS Indianapolis was launched on November 7th, 1931, and measured just over 610 feet long. In January of 1933, President Franklin D. Roosevelt chose the ship to be his ship of state, which I googled and could not really find a definition for that, (laughs) so I'm guessing it just means it was his preferred ship for when he needed to go on boat trips. Uh, and so while serving as his ship of state, I'm going to took- start calling my car, my ship of state, <laughs> <laughs> like there was some like Greek stuff about, I'm like, no, I need to, president. I need to know what it means for that. So, uh, so while serving as the ship of state, she took the president on three cruises, including his 1936 good neighbor trip to South America. In 1942, she earned her first battle star and became the flagship of the U.S. Fifth Fleet the following year. From May 1943 until April 1945, she earned nine more battle stars for her involvement in the Marianas Operation, the capture and occupation of Tinian Island, the the bombardment of Iwo Jima, and the Okinawa-Gunto Operation, among others. In May of 1945, the ship received massive damage in a kamikaze attack during the Okinawa-Gunto operation. Nine crew members were killed and 29 were wounded in the attack, and the ship would spend the month of May docked north of San Francisco for significant repairs. On May 8, 1945, Germany officially surrendered, ending the war in Europe. But this was not the end of the war for the USS Indianapolis. In July 1945, the ship was ordered to San Francisco to be ready for a secret mission. What was that mission, you ask? I will tell you what that mission was. (laughs) She She was to deliver enriched uranium and other parts to Tinian Island for the construction of Little Boy, the atomic bomb that would be dropped on Hiroshima. On July 16th, just a few hours after the first ever nuclear test in the New Mexico desert, she set sail. The ship reached the island on July 26th, unloaded her freight, and then set off for Guam. Now, I couldn't really figure out where I should mention this next part, so I'm just going to go ahead and mention it here. Um, On July 21st, another ship, the USS Underhill, was sunk after it had been torpedoed by a Japanese submarine on the Indianapolis' planned route. The captain of the Indianapolis, Charles B. McVeigh III, was not notified of the attack. All he knew was that hey, you need to be on the lookout. There could be subs in the area. Um, And another thing to note is they did not have an escort. I didn't realize that the Japanese had submarines. I I really didn't know that either, but apparently they did. Okay. So in the early morning hours of July 30th, 1945, 12.15 a.m. to be precise, 
Shortly after departing from Guam, the Indianapolis was struck on her starboard side by two torpedoes fired by the Japanese submarine I-58. Within 12 minutes, the ship was upside down. Oof. The stern rose in the air and the ship sank quickly after. An estimated 300 crewmen drowned in the sinking. And then nearly- amazing. I'm sorry. No, it's go like ahead. How fast these fucking things sink. Yeah. And I mean, 1215, people were probably asleep. Right. I mean, and it happens like, so fucking fast. That, I mean, and that's the same with the, um, I just did it five minutes ago. And my brain's Eastland? like, there we go. <laughs> Welcome to ADHD, motherfuckers. <laughs> um, no, I mean, 15 minutes. And that was, it's like, this shit mm-hmm. happens quick. It's fast. It's fast. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. So, um, Nearly 900 remaining survivors were left adrift in the open water without adequate supplies. How could this situation get any worse, you ask? (laughs) I'll tell you how it gets worse. Send in the sharks. Well, no, we're not even there yet. The U.S. Navy had no knowledge of the sinking. Oh, fuck. It would take four days and five nights before the survivors would be spotted by a U.S. Navy aircraft on a routine patrol. Fuck that. Yes, and we'll get back to why, you know, the shenanigans that led to them not being known uh, shortly. That, you know, there are several accounts about what happened over the next few days at sea from survivors. But today I'm going to share the experience of Ensign Harlan Twibble who was only one of the eventual 316 survivors. The men formed in groups for mutual protection, um, and they noticed that the sharks tended to avoid larger groups of people because obviously more people could kick and fight them off. Mm-hmm. It was believed that the sharks that were attacking the survivors and the dead were oceanic white tip sharks and potentially tiger sharks. For the most part, they would wait for survivors to float away from larger groups and then snatch them before anybody could do anything about it. And then they would also feed on the bodies of the dead. Um, So seeing this, Twibble organized shark watches to help keep lookout for potential attacks. And as men succumbed to their injuries that were sustained either in the bombing of the ship, exposure dehydration or salt poisoning because that's a thing Uh, he cut them from the wreckage that they had all tied themselves to and then so those dead would be dragged under by the hungry sharks now while twibble's group lost several men to the sharks there were some other survivors that claimed they never saw a shark during the whole whole ordeal well, who um, so were, where were they? Right. So there's no real accurate way to determine how many men were lost due to shark attacks. All, all we can say is that when it was all said and done, 878 men lost their lives. Yeesh. In an interview with the National World War II Museum, Twibble recalled, quote, we tried to keep the men thinking they would be saved, but there was no way in God's green earth that I knew we were going to be saved. My fear was really for the men, not for myself. My biggest concern was that the people we could save, we save them, end quote. Yeah. I mean, at that situation, you just have to like 
what is the best possible outcome? And let's try to go for that. Yeah. yeah. And just be as brave as you can. Um, Harlan Twivel was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for his bravery. And he went on to serve in Korea during the Korean War. He was married to his wife, Alice, shortly after he graduated the Naval Academy. And they had four children. He rarely spoke of what happened uh, during the war, but as he got older, he did start to share his story more, including with the World War II Museum. Um, After he retired from the military, he became a successful businessman, and he lived in Sarasota, Florida until his death in 2018 at the age of 96. God damn. Yes. (laughs) And he is buried at the Sarasota National Cemetery. What is it about survivors of shipwrecks? Like they just flipped death directly off in the face. Exactly. 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 Talk about people teabagging fate. These were like, (laughs) oh, yeah. Yeah, they don't fuck around. (laughs) Um, So now back, you know, we've shared his little story. Now we're going back to the days they were stranded at sea. So on August 2nd, a patrol plane piloted by Lieutenant Commander Robert Adrian Marks spotted the men and dropped life rafts. However, he soon realized that the survivors, they were too exhausted to even swim for the rafts. Mm -hmm. So he polled his crew and made an executive decision based on that poll to directly disobey orders and complete a sea landing and rescue as many survivors as he could. Good for him. He had men piled inside the cockpit. He had them hanging on the wings to get them out of there. Um, Later that evening, the USS Cecil J. Doyle and six other ships arrived and rescued the remaining survivors. That ship sounds like it needs to get a wedgie. Yeah, <laughs> I don't Cecil know who Doyle. Cecil, Cecil Doyle was, but he had a ship named after him. Um, so now's when we start to gird our loins to be pissed at the audacity of the U.S. Navy in the months <laughs> that followed. Captain McVeigh was wounded, but he did survive the attack, and he repeatedly asked why it took the Navy so long to execute a rescue mission. They never answered him. Imagine that. When the ship failed to reach its destination point on July 31st, no report was made to show that she was overdue. This whoopsie was later recorded as, quote, due to a misunderstanding on the movement report system. If my dad is five minutes late to duty, they're threatening to send him to captain's mass. Fuck (laughs) this shit. So for years, the Navy claimed that there was no SOS message received as it was as it was protocol that ships on covert missions operate under a policy of radio silence they weren't on a a secret mission anymore they were done with their secret mission right they were returning from right they were going to the next next stop so declassified records later confirmed that three separate sos messages had been received but were not acted upon because one commander was drunk. <laughs> the second thought it was a Japanese ruse. Oh, and the third had given orders not to be disturbed. Wow. <laughs> Fuck you right off, dude. That sounds about right. A Navy court of inquiry recommended that Captain McVeigh be court-martialed for losing the Indianapolis. The fuck? But instead, he was issued a letter of reprimand. reprimand. However, he didn't torpedo the goddamn thing. Exactly. Yeah. But he was responsible for this ship. 
That's horseshit. Okay, we're getting yeah, into it, it. So Admiral Ernest King overturned the letter and Thank instead, rec- no, he recommended oh. court-martial. <laughs> Fuck. McVeigh was- damn it, Ernest. <laughs> yes, McVeigh was, tra- and there's a whole nother side story that Ernest was holding a grudge against McVeigh for something that happened when he was under his command. Oh, Ernest, I didn't even suck a dick. Yeah, he, yeah exactly. <laughs> McVeigh was charged with failing to zigzag to avoid being hit and failure to order his men to abandon ship in a timely manner. I, I can't. I'm, yeah, I can't. So he was found not guilty on the second charge, Good. ordering his men to abandon ship, but he was found guilty of failure to zigzag. That's dumb. Oh God. Even though, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna fuck this up. I know, but I'm gonna try my best. Even though Mokisura Hashimoto, I got his last name right. There we go. Who was the commander of the Japanese submarine that sank the ship? Testified at his court martial that the ship would not have been able to avoid being hit by a torpedo by zigzagging he said the weather was fair there was no way that they weren't gonna hit when the the guy that hit your shit goes nah no we got him yeah yeah exactly (laughs) it's also important to note here that mcveigh had requested an escort destroyer but was denied it because the navy felt that the indianapolis wasn't a big enough threat to the japanese wow the japanese disagreed (laughs) exactly (laughs) He was the only military officer to be court-martialed for losing his ship in combat. His sentence was eventually remitted, but the conviction remained. So he went on to retire from the Navy in 1949 as a rear admiral. However, he never really got over being the Navy's fall guy for the loss of the Indianapolis. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. On November 6th, 1968, his body was discovered by his gardener. Oh. McVeigh, who had lost his wife to cancer and had oh. been tormented for years by angry phone calls and letters from family members of the dead sailors, Oof. had died by suicide. Oh, oh my God. He That's shot awful. himself with his service pistol and was found with the toy soldier good luck charm he had received as a child in his hand. he was 70 years old he was cremated and his ashes were spread in the gulf of mexico near slidell louisiana oh okay bringing it back home yeah bless his heart yes i mean i understand the family is being mad and they want somebody to blame and instead of blaming the navy Navy, well this is the person that the navy told he was the scapegoat yeah he was the scapegoat no i mean that's you know that's like when i see when you have like wrongful convictions but the mm-hmm. victim's family is like no no and it's they like, believe that you know they were they lost for so long. their loved one and someone in authority said this is the person who's at fault that yeah, yeah i mean you're just mm-hmm. gonna be in that you know yeah. god that's awful bless mm-hmm. his heart in 1998 Hunter Scott, a 12-year-old from Florida, began investigating the sinking as a part of a history project for school. I love 12-year-olds. He had become interested in the real story after watching the movie Jaws and being inspired by Quint's speech. He interviewed a number of surviving crewmen from the Indianapolis and went on to appear before Congress with those crewmen to argue for the exoneration of McVeigh. Oh, wow. Finally... 
in 2000, oh, Congress geez. passed a resolution that was signed by Bill Clinton that exonerated McVeigh for the loss of the Indianapolis. Oh, and uh, McVeigh had two sons, and they both lived to see this happen. So oh, good. That was, that good. was nice to see. Then bring um, their dad back, but good. Right. Yeah. So all of this time that's passed since the sinking, no one's no one knows where the wreckage is. Oh. oh. So so just. Several expeditions have been launched over the years to find the wreckage to no avail, but then in 2016, new records were released that pinpointed the ship's location at the time it sank as being further west than many people had thought. Hmm. On August 19th, 2017, the research vessel Petrel discovered the wreck at a depth of 18,000 feet. Jesus. Um, on September 13th, the show USS Indianapolis live from the deep aired on PBS, <laughs> which revealed the wreckage for the, to the public for the first time. And from what I read, it is very well preserved because of the depth it's at. Right, yeah. Right. Uh, that That's sense. Cthulhu's boat now. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. It's not like the Titanic, which apparently is being eaten away by algae. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, in 1995, a memorial honoring the crewmen of the ship was dedicated on the Canal Walk in Indianapolis. The limestone and granite memorial is in the shape of a cruiser and features an etching of the ship at sea and the story of its sinking on one side and the names of those aboard the night she sunk on the other. Oh. As with Sheena's story of the Sultana, over the years, survivors would meet regularly for reunions that were open to the public. But to date, to my best knowledge, there are only three living survivors of the USS Indianapolis. Hmm. On hmm. Thanksgiving Day, Aldolfo Harpo Salea, an Arizona resident and survivor of the wreck, passed away at the age of 94. Oh, so he damn. was four, and now there's three, according to the um, the USS Indianapolis Foundation. Um, there's not much about the wreck in popular culture, which surprises me. Mm-hmm. Aside from Quint's story featured in Jaws, there has only been one movie made about the ship. 2016's USS Indianapolis, Men of Courage, which starred Nicolas Cage. Oh, as God, why did I feel like that was going to be Nicolas Cage? <laughs> and featured Tom Sizemore and Thomas Jane in supporting roles. Directed by Mario Van Peebles, of all people, the movie has a 17% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, no. Glenn Kinney, a critic with RogerEbert.com, wrote that the movie was, quote, not exactly unwatchable, but it's also completely not worth of watching. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Not bad, but don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like Hollywood needs to get on the ball and make yeah. this movie. Yeah. But that is the story of the USS awesome. Indianapolis. I uh, had to throw in a shark attack in there. So yeah. Um, yeah. Last pod did like a three or four part series mm-hmm. on it. And it really got into like what all the survivors went through out on the water. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. that was like some brutal shit yeah this like i just wanted to high level overview you know this is the the basic gist of everything i learned a lot because you know i just knew it sank i didn't realize that it 
they didn't know where it was. Yeah. And, um, and initially the first article I read when I was looking, I was like famous missing shipwrecks and this was on there and I was like, Ooh, and then I'm like, Oh, this is from 2015. So the article, the information was outdated, but, um, yeah, very, very sad and tragic. And it's so awful what happened, not only to the men who survived, but captain McVeigh did not deserve that. He was, um, his father served in the military. He served in the military and it's just, you know, a situation like that, you know, I know somebody quote, you know, has to be held accountable, but right hold the Japanese guy accountable and that's the thing is like no not all the time does somebody Mm -hmm. need to be held accountable sometimes shit just happens yeah a a ship got hit by a torpedo in a war zone yeah you know there was was no like there was no escort even though the captain asked for one I mean that was like you know the big to-do everyone made over the um attack at the afghanistan airport i'm like Mm -hmm. you mean soldiers died in an active military zone Mm -hmm. that's kind of what happens during these things like yeah it's it's not anyone's fault other than the assholes who did it Mm -hmm. you know it's just that's what happens (laughs) you know yeah but anyway this was a good topic hannah it was good good idea i you enjoyed know, researching it and you here's know, nope. the funny thing about me okay so i actually hate boats <laughs> <laughs> spoiler alert i cannot stand being on a boat even if it's just a ferry to get somewhere i don't like it it makes me uncomfortable my grandmother at one time wanted to like me her and my mom go on a cruise and i was like absolutely fucking not <laughs> yeah i don't like boats like at all like being and it's not just like like cruise ships are dirty and you will get sex trafficked or get like some horrible like cholera or something (laughs) but it's a boat in the middle of the water like fuck that no my mom just got back from her like 15th cruise (laughs) your mom has my admiration i've been on one and it was okay I will not go on another one. I don't care to go on another one. If I want to go to Cozumel or the Cayman Islands, just I will just go. go I will just yeah. go to Cozumel or the Cayman Islands. I, uh, yeah, it, it even being it's a in canoes experience. bugs yeah. me. Like we would go out on pontoon boats on the lake when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and I was just like, I am not enjoying myself. I am having Man an was not meant attack. to be on water. <laughs> I was like, I am not. I will go sit on the beach. I will put my feet in the water. I will swim. I love to swim. I don't want to be on a fucking boat. <laughs> Sorry. Like, I'm all up weirdly. I've like in the last couple of years, all of a sudden become into the aesthetic of like the um, huge like sailing ships from like 1700s, 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, with the big masts and everything. And like, I don't know. They just do something for me. I just think they look really <laughs> rad. So you're, th- do you're I- saying you like a big mast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, but do is- I want, but then I think about like the people who had to go from like, you think about, I don't know, like people immigrating here on a boat <laughs> or whatever and, 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 and being on there for months and the conditions being as bad as they were. And I just, I'm like, oh my God, no, like they look cool, but don't ever put me on one. Uh Uh-uh. Well, the, uh, the United, the Navy has a, a ship 
a sailing ship that they're uh can't think of the name is it of it it was um is, is it the constitution it may be it was um it was outside our office in portsmouth uh so i posted a picture but it's like the one it's got all the masks and yeah everything it's the, probably uh, the the constitution because that's the, one um, of the og naval yeah. ships that they've yeah, maintained and they, the, the new sailors all have to sail on that before they yeah. pass over to the next level of their careers yeah <sighs> i went went on a tour of what is the big warship in mobile alabama yes yeah isn't it uss alabama Alabama? yeah uss alabama yeah (laughs) um i went on that when i was like 10 like me and my dad went on there and oh i hated it so badly oh it was awful and my dad was on on mini subs oh Oh, god my gigantic father who is claustrophobic was on mini subs no i I did go on yeah um, queen mary i want to do the queen mary i did their ghost tour because why not me and um, i remember being kind of thinking it was lame but that was also 20 years ago so i think (laughs) maybe it's improved i don't know and then too when i was in high school or we might have been in college but in hot springs speaking of arkansas all those duck boats like oh yeah capsized and i was like well fuck the duck boats yeah the duck boats scared me yeah, I didn't want to do that either. I don't even like the boats where you like, it's like a bicycle, the paddle yeah. boats. Uh-uh, no, fuck that. Fuck all that. I'm not doing it. <laughs> don't put me in a canoe. Don't, don't do any of that shit. Well, okay. This was an excellent topic. Good yes. job, Hannah. I think, Lori, you picked our next one, right? Yes. Yes. It We're is... going to be talking about people who died on the, up. Uh, sorry. I was thinking even further ahead. People who died on movie sets. No, no. it was people who died during the holidays, like Christmas, yeah. Christmas murders. Yeah. So we're going to get all um, Black Christmas up in here or mm-hmm. something. Damn um, right. Nice and scurry. I'm going to try so, to find something hella gruesome, as is my want. I'm well, shocked, there's a, Hannah. there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them out there. The holiday season. Well, um, and you see an uptick in domestic violence you've seen oh, uptick yeah. in suicides yep the holidays are um they're difficult yeah they and i think to start it off we need to come up with a list or maybe um you know one or two of our favorite non-traditional holiday movies oh um, yes you know like yeah Die that hard. we like to watch exactly I mean, like, <laughs> that's, my favorite, that's my favorite movie period so it's definitely my favorite <laughs> christmas movie but like just you know yeah mo- i love movies it. We'll we like it. to watch around the holidays that maybe aren't your traditional holiday movie but yep. with that being said please follow and like us and tweet us and instagram us or whatever you want to do we're on facebook instagram and twitter at cemetery row pod or you can send us an email with your stories or your episode suggestions at cemetery row pod at gmail.com Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Yay! thank you for listening thank you to revenge body for our music thank you derek for taking out all of our embarrassing mistakes yeah um, there were a few thank- this week <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening we yes. love you whoever yes. you are 
If you are a former coworker, I have bullied into listening. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Yep. <laughs> yep. All right. So we will see you next time. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.